you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see those of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Whether this is your uh, first time with us or whether you've been with us for years, uh, I believe that God um, loves you more than you can imagine. And I believe that God has something for each and every one of us this morning, whether it's a time in worship that we're singing, whether it's something through God's word, whether it's through the warmth of community, God, we pray that you would feel prayed for, cared for, and loved, and that you would know that that when you leave this uh, room or whether you turn off your screen at the end of the service, that you would draw closer to the Lord and that you would um, just know that God has you in this moment. You know, we are uh, in this series called Remarkable as we are looking through different miracles through the book of Mark, uh, recognizing in Mark chapter 6 the idea that they were, the people were in awe of the remarkable miracles that Jesus had done. And so we've looked at different types of miracles and how that points to us to who Jesus is, what he's done, and how that impacts us. And we are, um, we've had some pretty heavier weeks the past couple of weeks um, with the idea of talking about suffering two weeks ago and then uh, a discussion about death and resurrection last week. And so um, in order to maybe help with that, uh, the mood a little bit or to help us navigate this, um, I thought I'd show some pictures of my daughters with really cute animals. Uh, Just to kind of start us off, uh, yesterday we had the opportunity uh, to go to uh, the Critter Lady, who's someone who comes and presents um, at the preschool every year. Um, But then at the preschool fundraiser a few months back, uh, she was offering um, a, a, like, a, like a private experience here. And so this is uh, Elise with a raccoon, which it's a raccoon Remy who is already um, really safe and really good with kids. And so uh, Remy is super cute. Um, this is Ruby, the red-tailed hawk, uh, Ruby Red. And so inside her enclosure there. And then this was, I forget if this is a fennec fox. I forget if this was Minnie or if this was, I don't remember. It's either the girl Minnie or the boy whose name I forget. So let's say it was Minnie, just because that way I know the name. But each of the girls were able to, to do that. There's some pictures of, uh, of me holding animals, but it's less cute than the girls doing it. But what's great about this is that I mean, just a fantastic experience, being able to see how God has created all these different animals with intelligent design to know how to best navigate the different um, atmospheres or, or environments, rather, that they are in. And so just learning about all the different things there was really, really great. And what was good, though, especially the reason I want to show these three pictures is that in each of these different enclosures, the Remy the raccoon had her, uh, his own, her own enclosure. We had this with Ruby the red-tailed hawk. And then with the foxes here is that with each one of these enclosures, at, out, out of, uh, in order to be cautious to make sure that they don't escape, there were different doors where you'd have to, you'd go into one gate and you'd wait for that gate to close before you'd actually enter into the animal enclosure. And so this would allow so that the animals wouldn't obviously be able to get off and go free and run away. And it felt like an appropriate amount of caution. The kind of caution would say, okay, we recognize it's important to take care of these animals. It's important to know that they don't run off, and it's important that they know that they are safe. And so what happens here is that you go in one door, once that gate is closed, and you open the other one, you go in. And then when you depart, you do the same thing. You open that gate, wait until that one's closed, and you leave. Now, this is an appropriate amount of caution. But there's phrases that we've heard um, in the past where it's like, we want to do something out of an abundance of caution. And that's something that, that I know I've said. 
Um, because you want to say, okay, we want to take into consideration um, what needs to be cautious in order to be aware of things. But when we live our whole lives with an abundance of caution, that we might miss out on some of the things God has for us. In fact, there is, uh, Bridget Reed writes this. She talks about how the, the phrasing abundance of caution kind of feels a little oxymoronic, a little opposite here. And here's what she says. Though the scale of its terms are oxymoronic, the idea of abundance signaling plenty and caution calling for restraint, it only serves to make it sound more poetic. So instead of saying, hey, we want to be really cautious, we want to say we have an, an abundance of caution. We have so much caution that we would like to share it with you. She says it this way, imagine a kind neighbor coming over to your house and sharing their caution with you because they had an abundance this year, an unlimited buffet with a caution fountain, caution towers, and baskets of caution. We have a neighbor who uh, not that long ago, a few months ago came and she's like, they said, we have so much, so many avocados in our avocado tree here, take avocados. And these weren't like, like avocados in the store. These were like those avocados parents, like they were huge. Right. And it's just one of those where they just like, we're saying, oh, we have so many, some of you who have avocado trees or maybe you have lemon trees or different produce. You have these moments where you have an abundance of it. And you say, I'm just trying to give it out to whomever would receive it. And imagine if instead of this, instead of it being people giving you like extra avocados or lemons or whatever it is, people would just come to you and we're just giving, I'm, I've been so cautious this year that I want to give you some of my caution. I want to give you an abundance because I have so much. I'm going to give my caution to you because I have an abundance of caution. Again, it's a phrase that the, the meaning behind it is well-meaning. And I think there's validity and there's an appropriate amount of caution that we've had to navigate in this season. But recognizing what does it look like when we have an abundance of caution means that we are living so cautiously that we might become people who are missing out on living the way that God has for us. This idea here I want to unpack is living with an abundance of caution can lead to a mindset of scarcity. When we are so cautious that we're afraid to give of our time, then that means that we think, oh, we don't have enough time, and therefore we won't share it with people. If we're so cautious that we don't want to use the gifts God has given us, then we think, oh, we, I, I don't have enough ability to give everything, so I'm not going to give anything. If we're so cautious to give of, of donations and tithe, of uh, talents and tithes and time, then we think, oh, there's not enough, therefore I'm going to hold on to and hoard and keep for myself what little I do have. And it perpetuates a mindset of scarcity, that there's not enough for us in the world, therefore I must hold on to mine and we, hold, we live our lives with clenched fists rather than open hands. And it's this idea here, Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, unpacks a scarcity mindset and he says it this way, the scarcity mindset is the zero-sum paradigm of life. In other words, zero-sum is that if one person wins, the other has to lose. It's how we do all of our sports um, in America, where there's no tie or draw, unless if it's football and it's, you know, you've waited too long. But in soccer or football to everyone else in the world, it's a tie still counts as a point, whereas wins count as three points. You guys don't need to know that, I guess. But um, this idea of a zero-sum is the idea of it's only a winner and a loser. And that's it. And so when you live with that mindset, the, per, the person who has a scarcity mindset, their sense of worth comes from being compared, and someone else's success to some degree means their failure. In other words, only so many people can be A students. Only one person can be number one, and to win simply means to beat. 
So he's contrasting this idea of a win-win is when we have, a, we have something we're working on and I can find a win and you could find a win. We can have a win-win dynamic together. But a scarcity mindset says, no, only one of us can win. So therefore, I have to beat you because I want to be the one who wins. And this perpetuates throughout all of our lives. Have you ever been, without a show of hands or just an acknowledged, have you ever had a friend that did really well in something, whether it was when you were younger or whether it's in your career or even now when you think, man, like it's not fair that they did well and you want to be happy for them because you know a good friend would be, but in your heart you're like, but I want to be the one that has that. There's not enough plaudits or applause or money or success for everyone. So if that person gets some, then that means I can't. It's the idea that if we had um, a pizza here with eight slices, and if I give away three slices to one of you, then I'm like, oh, but now I only have five left. And then someone says, well, I'm hungry. Can I have any? I'm like, well, but if I give you one of the rest that I have, then that means I won't have enough. And most of you are thinking, Five slices is plenty. You don't need any more. But, but it's this idea that there's only so much. Do we believe that the pie, whether it's pizza, like, do we believe that it's restricted? Therefore, more for you equals less for me. Because if we live with that scarcity mindset, we will live with closed fists rather than open hands. And the contrast of a scarcity mindset is the abundance mindset. The abundance mentality, on the other hand, according to Stephen Covey, flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. It is the paradigm that there is plenty out there and enough to spare for everybody. That there is plenty out there. We, we think about how can there be hungry people in this world? It's not that God's creation of the earth doesn't produce enough food for everybody. It's that there's not enough because examples like Zimbabwe, when we went there, learning about how when... Robert Mugabe, it was called the breadbasket of Africa because the produce was so prevalent. And yet he would sell all of that to other countries so that he could get richer, but his people became poorer and they didn't have enough to eat. It's, it's not that God hasn't provided enough. It's that, that the rich will hold onto it or hoard it rather than give it because we think there's not enough for us. The, the more humorous example of this was three years ago and in the very beginning of COVID-19 when people were buying, and, and if this was you, it's okay, because uh, we we're in a crazy time, but people were buying toilet paper at an insane rate, right? It was recognized, well, what if there's not enough toilet paper? And all these poor, you know, middle school and high school kids that just wanted to toilet paper a friend's house, now they were all left out, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's this idea, think about it. The abundance mindset, abundance mentality thinks, okay, Yes, there's one pizza pie. There's one pizza. And if I give away three slices and I still have five left, you're right. If I give more, I will have less. But a scarcity mindset thinks there's not enough slices for me. An abundance mindset says, I can make another pizza. And there could still be enough for others. It's acknowledging that there is plenty to go around. And so instead of an abundance of caution, that we want to live with a scarcity mindset... As we unpack our passage today, as we turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, what we're going to look at is that with God, we don't live with an abundance of caution. We, like Jesus, can live with an abundance of compassion. As we get ready to see what God has for us, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. 
And Lord, I thank you that each person who hears my voice is someone who's been created by you, formed and shaped, and, and you know the days of our lives, the cries of our hearts, the hairs on our heads. You know us so well. That each person that hears my voice, Jesus, is someone that you died for and that you invite into eternal life. And Holy Spirit, each person who hears my voice is someone that you are drawing one step closer to the Father today. Whether that's for the first step we're taking towards you or whether it's just a deeper intimacy, Holy Spirit, may you work in us now. I pray that as we dive into your word that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Help us to live with an abundance of compassion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we're turning to Mark chapter 8, if, if the idea is that an abundance of caution leads to a scarcity mindset, one of our points that we're going to hit on today is this, that in Christ we can move beyond living with an abundance of caution and towards an abundance of compassion. That compassion doesn't mean, oh, there's only so much compassion I could have in my life, so therefore I can't give it. There's only so many resources I have, therefore I can't share them. Oh, there's only so much grace I can receive, therefore I cannot give it out to those around us. Instead, it's recognizing that there is enough, that with God, it's an ever-flowing abundance of these things. So one of our first points is the idea that there's enough compassion to go around. There's enough compassion to go around. Compassion doesn't have to be, we, we talk about this word compassion, that it's, it's the idea of this feeling in your guts. It's, a, it's, a, it's when you're, it, the Greek even points the idea of the bowels, like you feel it because you hurt because others are hurting. We see this here starting off in Mark chapter 8. It says, During those days, another large, large crowd gathered. Excuse me. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Now you'll notice here in verse 1 that it talks about a couple things. During those days, during those days, uh, is, you know, there's some of these verbs or verbiage that you see in the Bible that says, okay, if it's saying this, we need to take the, um, look at the context a little bit, right? So during those days, it's like, what, when were those days? What, what is he referring to? When is this in the story of Jesus's life as written in Mark? And where was Jesus when this happened? So if you look at Mark, Mark chapter 7, earlier on, you'll see that they're in a, a map, a region of Tyre, and then they go to a region of Sidon, and then they come down to Galilee on the Gennesaret side of uh, the lake. And we'll, we'll show a map a little bit so you can visualize it, but what you need to know and what helps us to, to be aware of this is we've shared over the past few weeks that there are times when Jesus would be on the Jewish side of the lake and he would work miracles. And then he would go to the Gentile side of the lake and he would work miracles. And then he would go back to the Jewish side of the lake in Capernaum where he was able to set up his, his camp for a lot of his ministry in Galilee. And so that would be, again, that's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. As contrasted to, then he would go to the east side of the lake. So it'd be on the other side and he would start to do some miracles. We, and we start to see over time that he's not just here. He doesn't just have compassion for the lost sons and daughters of Israel. He wants them to recognize he's the Messiah, but his compassion is not just for those who already believe the same thing he does. They're not for the ones who already have the same background he has. The compassion he has is great enough to extend beyond the lake. Now, we live in Escondido, and we're only one exit away from Pomerado Road to Via Rancho. But, you know, when you talk to people, oh, I like to live in Escondido, and sometimes they're like, oh, that feels far. 
Like it's only one exit. The problem is, is that, not the problem, but part of why it feels far is that there's only really one way to get there um, because of the lake. And by lake, I mean, when we show the map um, on, for the girls and it's like, while we're driving, like, dad, why is it blue all around here? And it's like, well, apparently this used to be a lake, honey, but now it's just a swamp and trees. But it's navigating, it feels like it's the other side of the lake. Oh, you live in Escondido. Like, that's kind of far, isn't it? Like, no, it's, it's just one exit away. But sometimes geographical, like geographical bodies of water or things like our mountains, geographical things can lead to what feels like cultural separations. And it's less, per, like it's less here from Poway to Escondido, but if on the west side of the lake is Capernaum, it's the Israelites, it's Galilee, it's where the Pharisees were, it's, it's where Jesus would teach in the synagogue. And then on the other side of the lake was culturally different, religiously different, different in so many different ways. So the during those days, in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, is saying that this is when he was on the Gentile side of the lake. So we wonder, it talks about how there was another large crowd that was gathered. Well, this shows us back, it points us back to Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, and, or excuse me, yeah, the feeding of the 5,000 and the loaves and the fish, and it points us to the fact that Jesus did that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 on the Jewish side of the lake. But you're going to start to see that there's enough compassion that Jesus has for these people who are far from him, yes, geographically, but even more so, far from him spiritually to the point where he goes to the other side of the lake and he says, I'm going to do a miracle here as well. I have enough compassion to share with those who are different than me. I have compassion on these people. As we continue on, we look at this idea that there is enough There's enough compassion to go around. If we only show compassion to people who are just like us, well then, the people who are just like us will have a picture of who God is. But people who are different than us won't be able to see that. In fact, we talk about, and the New Testament talks about how, you know, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That if you only love the people who are just like you, even the pagans do that but we ought to love those who are different than us. We ought to feel for those who are different than us. And it doesn't mean that we agree with everything that they're doing or saying. It doesn't mean that that we're uh, uh, coming alongside and saying that everything's okay. What it means is that we can have compassion and we can see that regardless of people's backgrounds, if people are hurting, what does it look like for us to try to come alongside them in their hurt? What does it look like for us to Come alongside and not say, I'm only going to help you if you believe the same things I do. I'm only going to have compassion on you if you look like, think like me. Because then it's a very narrow idea, and yet God's kingdom is far greater than just the west side of Galilee. It's open up to people on the other side of the lake. It's far greater than just our church or denomination. It's, It's God's love for all his people, and he uses us and calls us to be willing to go to the other side of the lake and to be willing to see people who are different than us and have compassion, to speak the truth. We don't forsake truth when we have compassion, right? We speak the truth, but we do it in love. They're both sides. Truth in love is how we ought to live. Truth without love is not really truth, and love without truth is not really love. Jim Van Eyperen said that, and it's a beautiful quotation. We have to have both in order to do this. So there's enough compassion to go around. There also are enough blessings to give away. 
That God has given us enough to be able to give to those in need. Whether it's physical need, material need, emotional need, relational need, spiritual need, there is enough for us to give away. We'll pick up the story back in verse 4. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, in the Mark chapter 6 version, um, as it comes to the end, it talks about how um, you know, Jesus says, or the, the Philip is like, can we send them away so they can start getting some food? And so Jesus is like, well, then you give them something to eat. We looked at that because Mark 6 and John 6 are very similar. And so we looked at that a few months ago. But the reason Mark 8 is different is that it's like, hey, this isn't a remote place. This is not like you're able to just go down the street and be able to get more food. It's, they were far enough away that for three days they were with Jesus, listening to him. They were, they were hanging on his every word. And whether that means that they had been fasting for those three days, or maybe they brought enough food for a short trip, but the message was so compelling, and they were being fed spiritually so much that they went without food physically. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is like, you know, they've been here for three days, and it's, they've come a long way, and it's in this remote place. So remote place is kind of a, um, it would be a, a uh, nomenclature, a way of just saying kind of like the middle of nowhere, right? Like they're, they're in the middle of nowhere. There's not, a, there's not like a Starbucks down the street. There's not a Walmart they can go to. It's the middle of nowhere. And so I just got, I was just interested to find out what is the most middle of nowhere place in the United States, in the lower, like obviously all of Alaska, right? So we're just going to kind of put them aside. But in the lower 48 states, what is the most isolated or remote place that's considered the middle of nowhere? So I looked it up, and I have a map here, and this is called Glasgow, Montana. Glasgow, Montana has owned the point where they literally, their entire, uh, uh, I don't know, if, if come visit us because we're in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if that's the best way to be able to promote your town, but here's what it says. Uh, a few years ago, the Washington Post used a database to study the contiguous United States. In the lower 48 states, Think of this, 98% of us are less than an hour away from an urban area. Obviously, we are much closer, right? But 98% are within an hour of an urban area. But the Oxford data can now tell us what American town is farthest from, quote, civilization. Now, they're defining civilization as being a metropolitan area with more than 75,000 people, okay? So it's not like if there's one town that has 150 people and another town that has 400 people. It's not necessarily saying that. It's saying where's the closest big city to where they are. And so Glasgow, Montana, near the Canadian border, is the middle of nowhere in rural America, hence their new phrase, and their street signs that go across middle and nowhere. Four and a half, so in Glasgow, Montana, is four and a half hours away from any city in any direction. Four and a half hours. And so in order to go anywhere with, you know, if, I mean, I don't know, just four and a half hours is long. It's a prairie town that's been in decline since a nearby Air Force base was closed in 1976. And uh, side note, it was named after Glasgow, Scotland by a railway clerk who randomly spun the globe in, in 1887 and just pointed at it. And they said, that's what we're going to name our town. So I, I wish it was Guam, Scotland, but that's okay. It's not, not a big deal. But this idea of four and a half hours. This, was, this would be a remote place to the point where they've owned the verbiage. We are Glasgow, Montana. We are the middle of nowhere. 
It's not something where if people were there, granted, this is nowadays when they can drive four and a half hours, but they're in the middle of nowhere. If they've been learning and if they were in this town now and they've been hearing for three days straight and if they had to go on foot, there wasn't a place for them to go to get meals for that day. So the disciples are saying, what, what, where do, what are we going to do? Because there's not a place nearby. There is nowhere near us. They say, but where in this middle of nowhere can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, some of us might look at this and we think, well, disciples, it was only two chapters ago where you saw on the Jewish side of the lake that Jesus was able to feed 5,000, five loaves and two fish. And so what might be going through their mind? In some senses, are they asking this because they're thinking, We've seen Jesus do this. So maybe they're asking, you know, when maybe you ask a question aloud, hoping someone hears it in order to fix something. It's that it, maybe they're like, well, where are we going to do this, Jesus? What are you going to do? You know, like, is it a sign of faith that they were doing it? Maybe. Is it the idea that maybe they've already forgotten what Jesus had done? When you're used to the miraculous or you're used to God moving, sometimes it's easy to forget. When, you, when you're only looking for big things, sometimes it's easy to forget small ways God's been faithful. And when you're going through difficult times, sometimes it's even to forget the big ways God's been faithful. The Life Application Bible Commentary says it this way. It says, people often give up when faced with difficult circum or situations. Like the disciples, we often forget God's provision for us in the past. When facing a difficult situation, remember how God cared for you and trust him to work faithfully again. If you've ever had a prayer answered, you think, oh, God answered. Like, it is clear to me God did something to answer that prayer. When we go through difficult, not if we go through, but when, because it will happen and does happen, when we go through difficult circumstances, do we say, well, God doesn't answer prayer? Or do we say, I know he has, and I don't know why he's not right now, but I still believe because he's been faithful before and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. Jesus never changes. Our circumstances certainly do. And therefore, sometimes our depth and degree of faith can change. But he is constant. So maybe the disciples are just, they forgot. They realize that Jesus has done amazing things. But even Mark 6, in cha uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 52, talks about how they didn't understand about the loaves. I mean, they were there, but they didn't fully grasp what Jesus was doing by multiplying and feeding the 5,000. But maybe, is it possible that when the disciples are saying, not just, you know, where in this middle of nowhere will we find bread, is it possible that they're saying, well, maybe... Jesus, we believe you can do this for the Jewish people, for the people who are, the, you are the Messiah for whom they came, or excuse me, for whom you came. But where on this other side of the lake, where in this middle of nowhere, where amongst the Gentiles can we see a miracle take place? Where can we see you doing something amazing? Maybe the lake was bigger than a geographical divide, but even a relational and religious divide between the disciples and understanding how God could work through Jesus on the other side of the lake. Is it possible? So we continue on. Verse 5. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. 
They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. The word give thanks here in the, in the NIV is, you, some of your versions might say he blessed it. And so this idea of whatever we have, time, talent, treasures, it's when we give it to Jesus, he can take it and he can bless it. And so a mindset of scarcity says, I only have an hour of free time. I want to take it to watch something online. Like, I want to watch a show that I've always been wanting to watch. I want to just doom scroll on social media. I want to do it. Or, because you think, this is all I have. I only have an hour of time. A mindset of abundance says, I can fill that time with that showing compassion to people. With using the blessings, time, talent, treasures, the blessings God has given me. If I only have an hour, I can use that hour for myself or I can bless other people. Now, let me be really clear. As an introvert, like, I take time for myself, right? So it's not like you always have to be always on forever. And if you ever take time for yourself to rest, it makes you a bad person. Not at all. What it means, though, is do you look at your time? Do you look at your talents? Do you look at your treasures? Say, I barely have enough for myself, so I'm going to hoard it and I'm not going to bless others with it. Or do you say, there's more pizzas that can be made. There's more abundance that can come. God can bless that time, and it can minister to other people, and then God can give me more time on the back end. This is not a health and wealth. You give money, and you automatically get everything you want. And the word blessings that we use here in, in, in our culture can often only be financial. We think, oh, I, I've been blessed financially. That's what we, we often will use that. But blessing is far greater than that. Just as the idea of giving is far greater than just giving financially. It's giving of your time, giving of your talents as well. So there are enough resources. There are enough things that God has blessed in your life and in mine to be able to give it away. Maybe it's a kind word of encouragement. Maybe it's being able to just let someone know you're praying for them. Maybe it's an opportunity to just call someone out of the blue and just say, thank you. Maybe it's being able to just um, take some time to, to, to take a, a family member out for lunch or for coffee and just say, hey, we, we, don't, we don't get a chance to connect enough. And I just want to say how much I appreciate you. Maybe it's as a parent, you just sit down your child, whether they're little or whether they're grown up, and say, I am so proud of you. How many of us long to hear that? How many of us live in that scarcity mindset where we think, my Dependence, my self-worth is based on being compared to other people. Whereas the abundance mindset says, I have a personal value. I have security in my value. Why? Because I know that God loves me. And the fact that he loves someone else doesn't dismiss or diminish his love for me. God doesn't have just one eight-slice pizza of love available for the world and for his people. There can always make more pizzas. And now... I'm just hungry. And so, let's keep going. But it's this idea of, of there are, you look and say, where are we going to have enough? And, you know, I, I was joking uh, with Beth Rosenberg earlier because I was like, you know, I'm talking about the feeding of the 4,000 today. And I'm like, what are we, what are, you know, what are we going to have at the picnic at the park? And you're like, you know, like burgers and stuff. I'm like, what if we just buy one burger patty? And just see if it feeds everybody, you know? And so, and then it's like, you know, do not put the Lord your God to, your, to the test. I'm like, okay, I won't do that, Lord. But I'm just saying, it's this idea of saying, recognizing 
that when you have a group of people, we always want to have more. We want to have more than enough. And so with God, we can either have more, excuse me, before God, we can have more than enough caution. Or with him, can we have an abundance of compassion to share with people what we have and to give what he's given to us. Lastly, we look at the fact that we know that there's enough compassion to go around. There are enough blessings to give away. And lastly, just this idea that there is enough grace to share with all. God's grace does not run out. It's not like he, like, again, I only have eight slices of grace to give away today. So the best Christians, the the ones who are taking the most notes or who pray the most or who go to the most amount of small groups or the most giving or the most, they're the ones that will get a slice and everybody else has to fend for the rest. You know, in other faith systems, it's all about what we do. It's about what they do to earn the love of God or to, live, to earn a love of their deities or to earn living a good life in order to be promoted to a better life in the future lives. So it's looking at not about what we have to do. Like this story, it's what Jesus has already done. And we have the honor and opportunity to share that compassion with others, to bless others with what we've been blessed with, and to show grace to people so that even if they're from the other side of the lake, geographically, relationally, or spiritually, that they can still know how important it is that they are beloved by God, that Jesus came to live a perfect life, and he died a horrible death, and invites them and all of us to eternal life. It doesn't matter where we've been. It matters who Jesus is, and through him where we're going, and with whom we are going on that journey. So, they talked about how all the people were satisfied at the end of verse 8. And here's part, 8 part B. I wrote it down wrong. That's my bad. So, 8 part B said, Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. A couple of things I want to unpack here. First, let's go ahead and go to the map um, that I mentioned earlier. So when we're here, we're starting here in Mark 7. We see that Jesus leaves the area of Galilee and he heads over to the region of Tyre. After that, later Mark 7 talks about how he goes up to the region of Sidon. Then it says that he goes the way through the other side of the lake. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. And then we don't know the exact perfect location of where he fed the 4,000. We know it was somewhere that was close to the water because they left shortly thereafter. We know that it's somewhere that was in the middle of nowhere, so the equivalent of Glasgow, Montana back then. So there's a city here. I mean, it says Tal Hadar. We don't know if that's really it, but it's likely there. And then we see that he goes back across, and you can't quite see it here, but uh, Dalmanutha um, is is a name of a city that isn't mentioned anywhere else. In the Matthew version of the story, it's called Magda. And so like the Magdalene, so it's looking at on that side of the lake. But he goes, again, from the Gentile side of the lake on the east side to the west side, to the Jewish side of the lake. But what's interesting and what's um, important for us to acknowledge or be aware of is that even some of the verbiage shows us something important about the amount of grace, provision, and compassion Jesus has. So you'll see here um, in verse... Uh, 8, part B, it says that the disciples picked up seven basketfuls. 
Now, when we look at that originally, if you, if you know, if you're familiar enough with this story in the Mark 6 story, feeding of the 5,000, we know that when he was with Mark 6 on the Jewish side of the lake, that there were 12 baskets left over of the food. It was overabundance, that it's not just barely enough. It's that when God gives, he gives generously, and he uses us to bless people generously. And so there were 12 baskets that were able to be, um, to be able to be used when there was the Jewish side. And then here we look and it says there were seven basketfuls. And so immediately we think, you know, I, I, I don't hear many sermons on the feeding of the 4,000 here. Part of it is because Jesus had already done more. He fed more people in Mark 6 with fewer loaves of bread, five versus seven. And so Mark 6 is more, is more impressive, for lack of a better term. Like, wow, that's amazing. Like, he did more with less. So then why does Mark, if he only has 16 chapters to share what Jesus has done and the life of Jesus through Peter, why does he spend time talking about another less, if you will, impressive feeding of fewer people with more bread? We hear here this idea of the word basket. So let's go to the next slide. The word here meaning basket is different from the one in Mark 6, verse 43. The one here when it says basketful, it's one that's used in Acts chapter 9 because it was big enough for a person to be hidden in. So in Mark 6, picture like a, like a basket, you know, that would be like this, like a cooler or something like that. In Acts chapter 9, it's a big enough basket that someone would be lowered in. So this is how um, we, we see an escape from prison through this. And so it's made of wicker for rope and for carrying provisions. Therefore, the seven basketfuls here may have contained more than the 12. The number 12 in the previous account of Mark chapter 6 is obviously relevant to Israel. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it connects numerically to them. The number seven here may, let me be clear, may symbolize fullness and completion and therefore means the Gentiles. In other words, after the seventh day in Genesis, it's, it's, it was finished, right? Like, it was good. Everything was made well after the sixth day, and then he rested on the seventh. It completes our week. It's a number of completion. And so what we look at is, is it possible that one of the reasons why Mark includes another feeding story with fewer people on more pieces of bread that would seem less impressive initially. It's because he wants to point out the fact that while the 12 baskets left over represents the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus came and he had enough compassion and enough resources and enough grace for the Israelites. He also had enough compassion and blessings and grace for those on the other side of the lake that the seven symbolizes, can symbolize, the idea that the message of the gospel, when it's given out to the Gentiles, that Isaiah talks about, it is through the temple, and Ezekiel talks about through the temple, that there will be rivers of blessing that will flow, and Gentiles will come to know who the Messiah is, who God is through the Israelite people. And so Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, it's fewer people, but the number is important. It may be even more because of the size of the basket, but it's important because it symbolizes the fullness of the message of the gospel through the Gentiles. So we ask this, is it possible that we are to see in the feeding of the multitude in Mark 6, the coming of the bread of God to the Jews, and in this incident in Mark 8, the coming of the bread of God to the Gentiles? 
when we put these two stories together, is there somewhere at the back of them the suggestion and the forecast and the symbol that Jesus came to satisfy the hunger of Jew and Gentile alike, that in him, in truth, was the God who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing? When we live with an abundance of caution, we walk around closed-fisted. But when we live like Jesus, with an abundance of compassion, we model God who has open hands. So we start to wonder, how is it then? How is it possible that now we're on the, again, we're on the other side of the lake. This is not the Jewish side of the lake. This is the, the Gentile side of the lake. How is it possible that 4,000 men, again, not including women and children, how is it possible that that many men and women and children showed up to hear Jesus talk? Well, we saw on the map that he went up to Tyre, and then he went to Sidon, and then he came down to Caesarea Philippi, and then he makes his way down. But we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how one of the stories, it's one of my favorites, and we just couldn't quite um, make it work in this series. But in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we see how when Jesus is on, again, the Gentile side of the lake, he heals the demoniac. All the, the demons, they go inside this pig. The pigs, the pigs, not one pig, all the pigs go over the edge of the lake, of the cliff. The people tell him to leave, and the demoniac comes. The man who was cleansed from this, the, with authority, Jesus freed him from the demonic oppression. And he says, can I come with you? I want to go with you. And in Mark 5, verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, no. I mean, Jesus had a follower, a disciple who wanted to go with him and to go and to do ministry with him. And Jesus says, no, why? He says, go to your home and tell the people how much the Lord has done for you. The Mark 5 demoniac is on this side of the lake. Mark 5 demoniac is over by the Decapolis. When it talks about here that he was near the region, Mark 7 points us to the fact that he was near the region of the Decapolis, the 10 cities. So William Barclay asks this question. He says, is it just possible that part of this great crowd was due to the missionary activity of the healed demoniac? Have we got here a glimpse of what the witness of one man can do for Christ? Were there people in the crowd that day who came to Christ and found their souls because a man had told them what Christ had done for him? That this man who was healed on the other side of the lake just started saying, hey, you ever hear about that crazy guy that was stuck in the tombs up in the city over there? You know, that was me. Hey, do you ever hear about the one, the, the time when the, someone who's so far gone, who was the worst of the worst and did everything wrong, had a complete life change? Maybe for some of you, you say, yeah, that was, that was me. I used to do X, Y, and Z, and now I'm made whole. I used to believe this, and now I'm set free that I know that God demonstrated his own love for me, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That I recognize it's not about how much I can do, it's what Jesus has already done for me. And recognize that one person who's on fire for Jesus, who, did, did, did the demoniac know all the different prophecies and all the apologetics? No. He didn't fully understand, right, when he came there that all the different ways that Jesus would fulfill the Messiahship because he was on the other side of the lake. But you know what he did? He just told people what Jesus had done in his life. What if I don't know the answers? No one knows all the answers. You know what you can do? You know what you do know? What Jesus has done in your life. What if they mock me and question me? They will. They might. It's probably going to happen. 
That doesn't relieve us of the calling to go and tell them how much the Lord has done for us. And is it possible that one person can have an impact to share his testimony or her testimony and thousands would want to say, who is this Jesus? I've heard about him. We saw Billy over here. He was crazy. Now he's back. Now, let's see if this guy Billy talks about is worth his salt. They go and they listen for three full days, and they're so amazed at what's being said, but then they go hungry. And now Jesus, this man that Billy told them all about, feeds them. And there's basketfuls left over. It proves to them that there is enough compassion to go around, that there are enough blessings to give away, and that there's enough grace to share with all. The grace, the gift that we've received of eternal life is not something that we just hold on to for ourselves. It's not even something that we only share what the Lord has done for us with other people who are like-minded. Because we could celebrate that, and of course, we, sh- we ought to do that, but that ought not be the only ones with whom we share. We share with friends and family. Just say, let me tell you how much the Lord has done for me. And see the impact. And it might take time. It might take years. But lives can change when changed lives talk about Jesus. We talk about one of the things that we want to be known for here is that we want to be people who are changed by God to change the world. One person at a time. Changed by God. He's discipling us. He's molding us. He's shaping us. He's working in us and through us. And he's doing that so people far from him would come close to him. So how do we move from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset? Richard Rohr talks about this. He says, only a personal experience of unconditional, unearned, and infinite love and forgiveness can move you from the normal worldview of scarcity to the divine world of infinite abundance. That's when the doors of mercy blow wide open. That's when we begin to understand the scale-breaking nature of grace. If we've not received grace, it's hard for us to give what we've not received. If even as Christ followers, for those of us who know and love Jesus, maybe we still have the mindset, there's not enough love or grace, so I have to earn this. I have to deserve it. I need to be at the top of the list because only one person can get, can be the best. That only one person can win. That means I need to beat everybody else at being the best at following Jesus. Only one can get a grade A as a follower of Christ, so therefore I have to be the one on my own, what I do to make myself worthy of the gift of Jesus. But the thing about a gift is that it's given, not earned. And it reminds me of this idea, if if some of you, um, when you have, uh, if you've had the honor of having kids, then you've had the honor of having multiple kids, you have a moment well, I remember I was talking to my friend. I used to lead a uh, dad's small group at my previous church for dads who were in ministry and who had young families. Like, how do we navigate this? What does this look like? We don't want our kids to hate the church, so how do we encourage one another to, to do this? And one of my friends, he was in there. He's like, you know, he already had his first child, and his wife was pregnant to, uh, to have their second. And he just said, I can't picture loving my second baby as much as I do my first I just, there's not, how is that going to work? 
And it reminds me of uh, when you watch uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the cartoon, not the Jim Carrey version, but the cartoon, and, and the idea of how it shows, like, there's that scene where it zooms into his heart, and it's like his heart starts growing bigger. That it once was two sizes too small, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and it breaks the scales. That for us, we love Shaylin, and then when Elise is coming, it's like, how are we going to love another child as much as we love our first? And it's like, God doesn't say, hey, the amount of love you have for your kids, it's scarce. You can only divide it 50-50. And if one kid's good, then you give them a little bit more. And then they're It's saying God has an abundance of love. His, he grows our hearts to love our kids. And his heart for us grows because he loves his kids. We're not going to run out of grace from God. We don't want to take advantage of it, right? We're not going to be like Paul would is like, so if, by sinning, does that mean that grace abounds? Therefore, should I sin more? He says, by no means. Like, we don't do that to test God. But we will never run out of the grace that God has for us because it's the gift. And he grows our hearts for those on the other side of the lake, those different than us, those far from God, far from us. But the miracle here isn't just that there's more than enough food. It's a fact that we can live knowing that there's enough resources, there's enough blessings to give away, to remember that there's enough grace to share with all, and to remember that instead of an abundance of caution, we can live as people with an abundance of compassion because there's enough compassion to be able to go around. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and I pray, God, that you would um, work in our hearts, Lord, that there are times in this message that maybe are encouraging or challenging or, or um, as we talk about people on the other side of the lake, we might have in mind a person that we know who is far from you relationally and far from you in regards to understanding about the gospel. And Lord, it's intimidating to go to the other side of the lake, but may we recognize that there is enough compassion to go around. We can care for people even if we don't understand or believe or agree with everything someone's doing, Lord, because you cared for us even when you didn't agree with us in our sin. So we can have compassion for those around us. We can give out of the blessings, the resources you've given to us, our time, talent, and treasures. There's enough to give away. And Lord, we remember that there is enough grace for all people that there's still truth and love, and we still need to come into right relationship with you to receive that grace. It's not cheap grace. It's costly to you, and it's the cost of discipleship for us, but it's there as a gift that we can't earn or deserve, but you've freely given it. So Jesus, may we live with an abundance of compassion to those around us, and may we be like you in your image as ones who don't live closed-fisted, but with open hands to share out of the bounty you've already given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second and this might be the most important thing you do. Share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.